Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides. This is our 20th episode, and it is for our message in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3 entitled, The Poured Out Soul. This episode will have four parts. In part one, we will look at the Tanakh, the way Israel structured their Bible. In part two, we will read a children's story called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon, and from it, see the importance of naming and confronting our distress, much as Hannah did in her prayer. In part three, we will interview Pastor Rory Collins on prayer. And in part four, the Psalms, a monthly prayer ritual. Then, as always, we will close with a preview of the upcoming chapters in 1 Samuel. Now, thank you for your questions. Some people have sent questions in, and they are fantastic. And I can't wait to find an episode where we will tackle some of them. Uh, please continue. Anytime you have a question that you would like discussed or something about the Bible or about upcoming readings or something about the message or just questions in general about life and God and theology and the Bible, um, I'm more than happy to take those the best I can. I'm no expert, but I do love at least discussing and looking at the different angles of a question. And I do believe that these questions are often great means of growth. So please go ahead and feel free to email your, me your questions, Brandon McCulloch at calvarychapel.com. You can uh, see how that's spelled in the notes to this episode. Or if you have a bulletin and you go to our fellowship, it's in the bulletin itself. Well, with all that, let's begin as we do each episode with a 60-second summary of the message on Sunday. Ready, set, go. If you thought Judges ended miserably, First Samuel opens with its continuation. The chaos and darkness is entered into the priesthood itself. First Samuel opens up with a barrenness. Hannah is a woman who has no children. There is no prophecy, no word of God in the land, and the character of the priesthood is corrupt, and it causes us to reflect on ourselves. First Samuel's opening up by asking us, what is the condition of our souls? Well, Hannah prays and Samuel is born. Samuel gives Hannah fruit. He also brings prophecy to the land and he prophesies the end of the corrupt priesthood. How do we bring a Samuel? How do we birth the word of God in our lives? The same way Hannah did. Prayer. She prays and pours out her soul. And so we see this is common with Jesus who tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because when we empty ourselves, he will fill us. There, about as simply as I can put it in 60 seconds, the message from Sunday. So, coming up first, did we skip the book of Ruth going from Judges to 1 Samuel? The answer is no. Because we are going to teach through the Old Testament in the order of the Bible that Israel put the books of the Bible. That is coming up in part one. Part one, the Tanakh, the structure of Israel's Bible. Our Old Testament is the Bible Israel read. The only difference is the way the books were structured in their order. 
we structure our Old Testament simply by genre. The poets go together, the prophets go together, the historical books go together, the law books go together. But Israel had a much more sophisticated way of arranging the material, in a way that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, so that the entire Old Testament became a story structure, and it said something to them. Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K in English, is actually just three letters in Hebrew. For Hebrew doesn't use vowels, just consonants. The vowels are implied when it's spoken. So they would have T-N-K, which is an acronym for the three sections of their scriptures. T stands for Torah, which we know as the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the same. The second section, N, Nevim. That's the prophets. So they had the Torah, the Nevim, the law, the prophets. And then third, the K, is the Ketuvim, the writings. The Torah, the Nevim, the Ketuvim. The law, the prophets, the writings. Now, as I said, the law is the same as in our Bible. But they saw the prophets very differently than us. Right after Deuteronomy, we turned to Joshua. So did they. The only difference is Joshua was a prophet. So was Judges and Samuel and Kings. Those are the next four books in their Bible. Ruth is located somewhere toward the end. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. These four are called the former prophets. Now what you'll notice is from the first five books of Moses, through these four former prophets, you have nine books telling a story. It's a narrative. You have from the beginning of the world to the creation of Israel's kingdom to its collapse. Genesis begins with the creation of the world. Kings ends with Israel in exile. Then, and by the way, that story takes about 150,000 words to tell. Then you launch into the latter prophets. And from here, we break away from narrative and storytelling and we enter into commentary, prophecy, poetry. This is the writers of Israel looking back and reflecting on the exile, its tragedy, its significance, asking, why did this happen? Now that it has happened, what does this mean for us now? Where are we going in the future? Has God abandoned us or does he have a plan for us? There was a lot of rebuilding to do with the rubble of their exile, their destroyed Jerusalem and temple. A lot of re-identifying, re-getting to know God, recommitting themselves to him. And so the second half, after Kings, the rest of the Old Testament, takes roughly 150,000 words to tell this commentary. Perfectly balanced, isn't it? So the latter prophets enter. We have Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and... The minor prophets, all 12 of them, collected together 
as one work known as the Twelve. That's the prophets. Eight of them. Four are known as the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Four are known as the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Then you go to the third and final section of the Jewish scriptures, the writings. And there are three collections of the writings. The first collection is known as the Book of Truth. And we're still in the commentary, by the way. The Book of Truth is Psalms, Job, and Proverbs. Then you have the scrolls, the second collection, the scrolls. These are five books. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. This collection of five, the scrolls, each corresponded to one of Israel's festivals, at least five of their festivals. Song of Songs was read during the festival of Passover. Ruth was read during the Feast of Weeks. Lamentations during the Ninth of Av. Now that's a feast we don't see in the Bible, but it was celebrated by, or more likely lamented, by the Jews shortly after the second destruction of their second temple. In AD 70, 40 years after Jesus, the Romans leveled the temple to the ground. This was on the ninth of Av, which, uncoincidentally, was the same day the Babylonians destroyed Israel's temple back in the Old Testament in Kings so the ninth of Av became a miserable day of lamentation for Israel. You can see why Lamentations was read on that day. Ecclesiastes was read during the Feast of Booths, and Esther was read during the Feast of Purim, as should be obvious because Esther is the story about how the Feast of Purim started. And then the third collection of writings is creatively called The Rest of the Writings. And here we actually go back to narrative. We go from commentary to narrative. And actually Esther too is a narrative. But so the Tanakh closes with, it be, opens with narrative, and the middle has a lot of commentary, prophecy, poetry, and then it closes with narrative. And here we have Daniel. Notice, not put with the prophets. We have Ezra and Nehemiah. Both of those two books in our Bible are one. And then Chronicles. Chronicles closes the Tanakh. Not First and Second Chronicles, the, the two were just one work known as Chronicles. Now, that one always interested me, because in our Bibles, we have Chronicles following right after Kings, and it makes for rather repetitious reading. But by putting Chronicles at the end of the Bible, of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, it creates a bookend with Genesis. Genesis contains ten genealogies. And it's a story that is concerned with land, seed and land. These are the people of God through Abraham. And here's the land that God created the world with and the land he's giving to Abraham. Chronicles is also concerned with both of those things. Chronicles is this book of hope that, look, we lost the land in exile, but it's still ours and we'll have it back. And one of the ways Chronicles says that is by opening with 10 chapters or so of genealogies. Yeah, it is a lengthy genealogy opening that book, mirroring Genesis with genealogies. Chronicles is concerned as well 
with seed and land. And so creating this bookend to the entire Old Testament is this dual promise that God has had for Israel that I will give you a people, I will give you a land, I will give you a king and a kingdom. Genealogy as well as geography. So we at Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks will be going through the Old Testament in this order. Because I see the intentionality that Israel's doing. They're structuring this story of tragedy. God had promises and Israel did not keep their end. And it seems like through their exile, God had broken their promises. But it ends with hope. The commentaries all showing signs of the future. The book itself coming to this close with, but something's going to happen. God will bring us back. And it gets us ready for the story of Jesus who does just that. Because Israel's exile is really the story of humanity's exile, not from Jerusalem, but from the Garden of Eden. We are all lost. We are all trying to figure life out in the midst of rubble. We're all trying to remake something. We're all asking, who is God? Who am I? Did he fulfill his promises? Is he going to fulfill them? Is he coming back? Will everything be restored? And so we are going to go through those questions, through that journey with Israel. And then we will come to the Gospels with Jesus as the glorious answer. He is the seed. He is the land. He is the answer. He is what the entire Tanakh is thirsting for. That is why we are not doing Ruth after Judges. Part 2. There's no such thing as a dragon. The importance of naming and confronting our distress. What we emphasize in the message of the poured out soul is how Hannah is in distress and yet she does not hesitate to confront that. We read in 1 Samuel 1 that she was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And she is, uh, although not audibly, she is, she is naming and giving language and definition to what she's feeling so fervently that the priest sees her lips moving and assumes she's drunk. In response to the accusation, she replies, this is 1 Samuel 1.15, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking... Out of my great anxiety and vexation. So we're going to hear a children's story by Jack Kent. It's four and a half minutes. As you listen, I want you to focus on what happens when we don't name or identify problems in our lives. And think about Hannah naming, identifying, giving words and language and specificity 
to what she's feeling. There's no such thing as a dragon. Story and pictures by Jack Kent. Read by Patricia M. Kraus. Billy Bixby was rather surprised when he woke up one morning and found a dragon in his room. It was a small dragon, about the size of a kitten. The dragon wagged its tail happily when Billy patted its head. Billy went downstairs to tell his mother. There's no such thing as a dragon, said Billy's mother, and she said it like she meant it. Billy went back to his room and began to dress. The dragon came close to Billy and wagged its tail. But Billy didn't pat it. If there's no such thing as something, it's silly to pat it on the head. Billy washed his face and hands and went down to breakfast. The dragon went along. It was bigger now, almost the size of a dog. Billy sat down at the table. The dragon sat down on the table. This sort of thing was not usually permitted, but there wasn't much Billy's mother could do about it. She had already said there was no such thing as a dragon, and if there's no such thing, you can't tell it to get down off the table. Mother made some pancakes for Billy, but the dragon ate them all. Mother made some more, but the dragon ate those too. Mother kept making pancakes until she ran out of batter. Billy only got one of them, but he said that's all he really wanted anyway. Billy went upstairs to brush his teeth. Mother started clearing the table. The dragon, who was quite as big as Mother by this time, made himself comfortable on the hall rug and went to sleep. By the time Billy came back downstairs, the dragon had grown so much he filled the hall. Billy had to go around by way of the living room to get where his mother was. I didn't know dragons grew so fast, said Billy. There's no such thing as a dragon, said Mother firmly. Cleaning the downstairs took Mother all morning. What with the dragon in the way and having to climb in and out of windows to get from room to room. By noon, the dragon filled the house. Its head hung out the front door. Its tail hung out the back door. And there wasn't a room in the house that didn't have some part of the dragon in it. When the dragon awoke from his nap, he was hungry. A bakery truck went by. The smell of fresh bread was more than the dragon could resist. The dragon ran down the street after the bakery truck. The house went along, of course, like the shell on a snail. The mailman was just coming up the path with some mail for the Bixbys when their house rushed past him and headed down the street. He chased the Bixby's house for a few blocks, but he couldn't catch it. When Mr. Bixby came home for lunch, the first thing he noticed was that the house was gone. Luckily, one of the neighbors was able to tell him which way it went. Mr. Bixby got in his car and went looking for the house. He studied all the houses as he drove along. Finally, he saw one that looked familiar. Billy and Mrs. Bixby were waving from an upstairs window. Mr. Bixby climbed over the dragon's head, onto the porch roof, and through the upstairs window. How did this happen? Mr. Bixby asked. It was the dragon, said Billy. There's no such thing, Mother started to say. 
There is a dragon, Billy insisted. A very big dragon. And Billy patted the dragon on the head. The dragon wagged its tail happily. Then, even faster than it had grown, the dragon started getting smaller. Soon, it was kitten size again. I don't mind dragons this size, said Mother. Why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, said Billy, but I think it just wanted to be noticed. I'm not sure, said Billy, but I think it just wanted to be noticed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 2 then tells us how this happened. Now the earth was without form, and it was empty. It was void. The ancients would have looked at this as chaos. This is a place that's unordered. Everything's going about in its own way. What God does with this is verse 3. And God said. Unleashing a series of words coming from the mouth of God. He speaks light, land, sky, birds, animals, humans, so forth. And what was formless and empty was now gaining structure and being filled with purpose and life. Now, of course, there are many principles and insights to take out of Genesis 1. But let us for a moment consider this one. God transformed a chaotic world into something that was very good through the use of words. Language organizes the soul and the world. The lack of language, the lack of addressing, of naming, of articulating, of talking about things, just ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug, problems brew there. Chaos reigns. And one additional point. When humanity was in chaos, the word became flesh and spoke to us. I think Hannah gives us a great example of what to do when it feels like our worlds are coming unglued. Go to your father and use specific words, even if they sound ugly and negative and dark, but use words to build your world back up. To give it to God. Part 3. An interview on prayer with Pastor Rory Collins from the Mountain Hope Center. What we're here today with Rory to talk about is prayer. Um, Some of you may know that Rory puts on the week-long mountain-wide prayer event uh, at least once a year, often a a two- or three-day event somewhere else. Yep. Um, So we're going to talk prayer with Rory. And Rory, 
I would like to know if you remember the very first time you prayed. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I grew up in New Zealand, grew up going to church, um, and I... I remember giving my life to Jesus at six years old because that was the lesson in Sunday school that day. Um, And so that was when I gave my heart to God. But I don't remember a time where I didn't love him. And so prayer in my house was a part of what we did. Uh, We pray for meals. uh, We pray to church. And so my own uh, first time praying would have been something along, you know, either praying for grace for a meal or... Uh, repeating what, you know, the family grace. Yeah, okay, so you've been praying since you can remember. As far as I can remember, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. that, maybe that first significant prayer was that Sunday school lesson when you asked Jesus into your heart? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that was that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, well, you know, when you're in church and growing up in church and it's all that you know, and it's like, ah, oh, well, I haven't actually prayed this prayer, so how about I pray this prayer? So, <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. So really, your your first um, lessons in prayer were from your parents. Yeah, absolutely. They, they taught you to pray. Yep, absolutely. Yep, yep. I mean, we started off in an Anglican church, um, and so that was, uh, you know, a typical, you know, English style Anglican church. <laughs> but uh, it was a it was a a live Anglican church, and then um, by alive you mean less uh restricted by the liturgy or yeah by that? yeah a little bit of it was uh there was a minister there who was very like the liturgy is important but it needs to be connected to the heart so it wasn't just a uh, a, a rote thing it was very much a heart issue so yeah he was he was great so so you didn't just learn to pray from formulated prayers you also yeah there was to a pray from the heart learn to pray from the heart as well yep so definitely the formal as well as the heart side of things. What kind of benefits do you see coming out of being raised with both like free form and formal prayer? Yeah, I mean, I certainly for um, the the liturgy was great for um, just having something to uh, to pray through, having giving words to stuff that maybe you don't have words to, and then mm-hmm. developing. I think probably more in my teenage years, starting to develop that side of, um, okay, there's something, I don't want my my relationship with God to be something that is just based on uh, somebody else's words, but it's something that's about the heart issue. And I think that was those early teenage years of starting to develop and understand that this is there's more to it than what my parents have taught me. There is the heart stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if you could... Um kind of describe then real short your journey of prayer from mm-hmm. mimicking my parents mm-hmm. to form prayers at church yeah like what does that kind of journey look like to yeah. where you are now sure and it has been a journey it's funny because i grew up primarily in new zealand in a charismatic pentecostal church and so i grew up with a lot of the um the sides of that a lot of Loud prayer. <laughs> wait, wait, okay. So you went from high church Anglican uh-huh. to charismatic uh-huh. Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> so I think okay, my so parents... you have some diversity. Yeah. Here. So my parents were... They got saved in the Anglican church, but in the 70s in New Zealand was when the, the charismatic renewal, the Jesus movement was, you know, a big part of what was happening throughout New Zealand. And so that's when, okay. that's when they transitioned and and found ourselves and we moved an an area i think a part of it was we moved from the north island to the south island and the church Mm -hmm. that they settled on was 
uh, a Pentecostal charismatic church. Interesting. So you went on a geographical journey as well. Yeah, that and so, coincided a spiritual journey. Absolutely. And so we ended up in this farming community in the South Island of New Zealand in a country rural Pentecostal church. <laughs> and so all the the stuff that comes with that. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of loud prayer. There was a lot of declaration prayer. There was a lot of um, that type of prayer. There was a lot. And for me, I think my journey was if I'm not praying, there was a whole lot of guilt associated with prayer. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think it, it became a little bit of a doing based thing. If I'm not doing prayer, there was guilt associated with it. Okay. And then I finished high school, went to university, and then actually ended up in a Bible college in Orange County in America, which is ironically where I met my wife, or coincidentally. Um, And that school was a very, it had a real strength in teaching people to pray so that if you go to the hardest places on the world, that you knew how to get a hold of God, right? And so that was great. And so we learned very much pray or die was kind of the motto of church. Um, you, you knew how to pray and how to, how to get a hold of God or, you know, you, if you're in the hardest places in the world, you're going to die. The, again, it fed into a doing side of things that it was very, uh, if you're not doing this prayer, if you're not praying strong prayers, if you're not doing a lot of declaration, then you're not really praying. Um, Mm. and so that was a weakness of that side. And so going from there back to New Zealand, youth pastoring and and back in the church that I grew up in, um, and then coming over to the States and, and being over here and, and growing and developing, um, some other sides as well. But I think it was only in the last three years, um, where we went back to New Zealand and we were apart and we got to spend some time in a prayer room, uh, back in New Zealand and going into it. And this is when you, this is after you were done at Church of the Woods. Right? Yeah, That's after okay. done at Church of the Woods and we went back for a season. We felt like God led us back to New Zealand for a season to just um, renew, just take some time out and to reflect and see where God wanted us to go. And we would go to this prayer room and I remember for the first time going and thinking and, and they'd have worship music playing or they'd have somebody with a guitar doing a whole lot of worship and I remember thinking, I remember used to think, this is in prayer. There's no strong moments of de- declaration or there's no, you know, nobody's praying the word or, you know, it's not that they weren't praying the word, but they weren't doing it out loud in a, in a formalized setting, praying through a list of things. Mm. Um, but what they developed was this awesome place where primarily the first place was to come in and say, uh, Daddy, what's on your heart today? What do you want to engage in? And it was just this hmm. shift of adding to all the good things that we'd learned. It wasn't that the things we'd learned were bad, but they just were one side of the pendulum of a whole lot of doing-based stuff to go into this place of just being. To be, It's okay to be just silent. Hmm. It's okay to just have some worship music playing and be in contemplation of of what I've just been reading in the word. It's okay that prayer can be um, prayer can be this place where I'm, you know, if I'm artistic at all, that I can be painting 
and engaging with God that way. And it was just this dramatic shift in my prayer life that went from, yes, there is an element to doing, to everything that we do, but going to this place of learning how to just be still and be with God, kind of like when Moses, you know, in Exodus 33, where he, he met with God face to face and spoke with him as, as like a friend. And it's like, it just took a whole lot of the, uh, a whole lot of the guilt, a whole lot of the works, a whole lot of the effort and prayer and made it this place of that, that primarily God actually wants to engage with my heart yeah. <laughs> first and foremost. And then out of that place, yeah, sure, the doing comes, but primarily that I need to get back to this place of learning how to just be and connect with the heart of God. I, I love this journey you're describing. Um, Eugene Peterson, his mm. book on the Psalms is mm. called Answering God. Right. And his thing is that prayer is first and foremost a response to something God has already done yes. or has already said. Yes. And I love, because the journey, if I'm hearing you right, is yeah. early on, it's almost like, God, hear us. Yes. Um, we're trying to get something going on uh-huh. here. And then it moved into, wait, wait. Yeah. He's already doing something. Let's catch up to him. Let's let's pause uh-huh. for a moment and respond to what we're hearing, feeling, yeah. seeing. Absolutely. Because so much of our prayer can, what I learned was, you know, we come to God with our list of things for him to do for us, mm. right? Whereas he's already done everything that we need. And and like you say, we, we are responding to him and his heart. Um, and from that place of uh, getting myself in line with where he is, mm-hmm. then the doing, my doing part becomes a whole lot easier. And so, yes. yeah. And so it's, yeah. It's almost it, like a better understanding of grace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we just, and it was, you know, I, 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 I'm so grateful for my, uh, my upbringing. I'm so grateful for strong prayer and declaration. But now that side of my life comes from the place of actually being in his presence, learning to hear his, hear his voice and hear what he's wanting me to actually be in the business of doing rather than coming to him with my list, which he already knows about anyway, um, and my list of things that I need him to do, and and just and trying to connect with what he is saying to me in any given moment. So is this sort of, this journey, and where you're describing where you're at now in the last two years, is this where the week of prayer, setting up a prayer room, um, yeah. and inviting community to, is that what it looks like is that sort of a walk through Rory's personal prayer habits yeah yeah we set up mountain prayer center we tried to set it up as something where um and it's honestly my wife is the one she's she's the one who has the biggest heart for this and and I'm and I'm right there with her on it but she's the one who really has the heart for um for the prayer center and so mm-hmm. the the whole goal with doing like a 24/7 prayer week um, where we we set up a room um, and, and we've been doing it at Alpine Camp and we have it set up that people could come, they can own an hour of prayer, trying to create a 24-7 chain, right. which is going. great. Yep, which is great. But the whole point is that people would come into the room and we have different uh, helps. We call them prayer stations where we take them through a theme 
um, of of where we're going for the week to help people engage with prayer. You know, and, and so yeah. the heart of it is that we would try and help people to grow from this place where prayer is just for a few. It's just these things, but actually it's so broad. You see, you're, you're taking people on your journey. Yeah, trying to help people to, and, and if people come in and they just open their Bible and pray and they've got the, you know, the worship music playing, great. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not like we want people to do a certain thing, but we're trying to help people through having prayer stations and trying to help people to engage. Like we have these different ones. We might have, you know, a station that's based around communion and, and doing that. But we might have a, like we set up a, uh, in one of the years we did it, we set up a little, like a little booth, like a, a, a prayer booth that you might see in a, in a Hebrew, you know, kind of culture. And you might see a little place there was a place where people could come and maybe just be silent before the Lord or mm-hmm. come into that little place and, and just in confession and recognizing their heart before God. And, um, and so just trying to use different elements of how broad and diverse prayer is. Yeah. Because it is so broad and, and, and that's, that's the heart of our creator. He made us diverse. He wants us to connect with him in diverse mm. ways. So there's so prayer is almost like it's like a language. Yeah, there's no like one way to yeah. pray. Yeah, exactly. You know, how would you relate to your, you know, the way you relate to your wife versus the way I relate to my wife are going to be totally different ways that we relate. You know, love languages. You know, the things that are a part of how we connect with connection. That's yeah. the word. How do we connect? It, you know, with our the people that we're involved with day to day, and the same yeah. thing is with you know, how we do prayer. It shouldn't be this narrow way that we only do prayer and it must be 30 minutes and it must be this list of things <laughs> we do. Mm-hmm. But maybe for me, getting outside mm-hmm. and walking and praying and loving nature might be an awesome way that I connect with God. So you can pray with your eyes open. Praying with your eyes open all the time, yeah. you know. Um like having a conversation with God. And I think that's what he wants. I think he wants us to come to that place where we come before him and say, okay, daddy, what's on your heart? What do you want to talk about today? Yeah. What, where are you at? What, what's, what, what is it that, uh, that you like? What is it that you want? You know, what is it that you like about me? What is it that you like about what you're doing and, you know, in the world? What is it? How can I connect with your heart today? Yeah. I, I've been when I've been to the prayer center. I really appreciate how there's a space that's designated to prayer. Yep. This room that is its purpose, and when you walk in, you almost feel like you're walking into a cathedral. Right. The way that they're very silent, and you can tell I'm in a holy place. Yep. Yet cathedrals are intimidating. Right. They're high vaulted ceilings yeah, yeah. and stained glass window. I'm like, am I holy enough to be here? Yeah. But this was such a. It, it, it felt like you were welcome. Kind of yeah. like that that place of quiet, like a cathedral, but without the cathedral. Yeah. Exactly. I really appreciated that. Yeah. Now, and, and then you, you also, you see so many um, different prayer expressions. There's yes. like a map to pray for the cities of our community. Yep. But then you had like, uh, there was a, a sandbox. Uh-huh. Uh, can you describe that real briefly? Like yeah. what that's about? Yeah, I think the sandbox was, I mean, it was based around, uh, I think it was, that one was based around a confession of, of our sins, you know, where we could write 
our, you know, write our sins into the sand. Oh, like and then Johnny. Yeah, and then and then wipe it clean, and and just recognizing that that's what God does for us, and and that He wipes our sins clean, and it is there. There's no evidence any longer, you know, when we go through and we do that. <laughs> so I can't follow you up and say, yeah. "Oh, Rory, yeah. no way." <laughs> exactly. I think that's what that one was, or it might have been something different. But just... it reminds me when uh, Jesus um, started writing in the uh-huh. dirt at the temple. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just trying I, to be... I don't condemn you going to yeah, anymore. Yeah, we're just trying to get people to engage our hearts with God um, because we are so diverse and we've been created in these amazing ways and 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 just trying to think of ways that how yeah. can I connect my heart to God and hear what he's saying to me? Kind of aligning myself with him. Right? Right. How can I align myself with what God is saying and doing in any given moment? Do you feel like you gravitate towards certain practices in different seasons of life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, like we still have Mount of Prayer Center, um, you know, we have a a weekly set of hours that we're open. So we do the 24-7 week two or three times a year at Alpine in that place. We have Mount of Prayer Center um, located over in Dark Canyon there at 555 Dark Canyon that people could come two to four on a Monday, Tuesday, um, six to eight on a Wednesday, nine to eleven on a Thursday morning, um, and then Saturday morning and Saturday evening, and and the heart, um, and we have it set in such a way that um, you know we want a similar sort of experience that anybody could walk in at any time and engage that way. But you don't have to come to a place to do that. You can engage right. with God anywhere. You know, that's the place we have. And so for me, sorry, your question was, for me, <laughs> I love worship music going. I love I love being in that place. When I go to prayer room, I have my iPod plugged in. I have some worship music going. Sometimes I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm walking. Sometimes, you know, I'm walking around my room and, I, and, and around the room and I'm praying. Sometimes I've got this really comfortable chair that I sit in. Mm. Um, and it's right there and I just open my Bible and it's, you know, just spending some time, um, you know, saying, God, what are you wanting to say? I'm not very artistic, but we have these awesome arts <laughs> stations set up yeah. and people have done these awesome art stations and it's, uh, they've done these awesome pictures of whatever, you know, God's put on their heart and they've got a verse or they've got a picture and, and I look at them and go, that's awesome. I'm so happy for them. Uh, <laughs> You know, for me, it would be stick figures, and that would be awful. Um, but, uh, you know, just those are my practices, some of those sort of things. Contemplation, you know. Um, and, yeah, taking, and what do you mean by that? Taking the time, you know, maybe I've just read some scripture and stuff, and rather than just rushing through it, taking time for meditation, contemplation, thinking about what I've just read. You know, and, and people, they talk about meditation and the tie into Eastern stuff. Well, you know, that's emptying the mind. Part of meditation for us as followers of Christ is, okay, what are you saying through your word? We're filling our mind with what God has said. And so meditation and contemplation would be two similar type things for me. They'd be contemplating on God. What is it that you've said? What are you saying through those things? And so that's why I love my brothers and sisters and and who have um, a strong liturgy component because it's a reminding of myself of the things that God has done. And so liturgy within itself for me is great. 
because it's a heart issue. It's always a heart issue. If my heart is in it, then I can do liturgy and connect with what, and still connect with the heart of God if my heart is there in it, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the difference, you know. And that's the beauty of your journey, is yeah. that you haven't just abandoned your past, you've no. incorporated it yeah. into your progression. Yeah, absolutely. And now for me, like I still have a strong declaration component to my prayer. Mm. I still have a strong... Um, you know, so you're an Anglican Pentecostal contemplative. Yeah, that's, right? that's fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, and that would be a part of of the journey of those. I would, I just hate when we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. That I can't. I have to be able to learn from what I've grown in. I can learn from. I can learn from anybody. We should be able to be able to learn from anybody and be able to pick. And say, okay, I feel like there's that God component on that. There's good stuff on that. Okay, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not going to be on this part of this. Um, but I can still learn and grow from all sorts of different ways and all sorts of things. I think God can speak to us through tons of different ways and tons of different people. So, um, yeah, and that's been a, a fun journey. So, yeah, I've got some <laughs> Anglican, Pentecostal, contemplative... Um, yeah. It's, Which, by the way, I'm. Uh, I'm. I would really like to know what were your first impressions when you went out of the Anglican Church and into the Pentecostal Church for the first time. Well, the Anglican Church. It was funny because in New Zealand, I mean, I'm young. Okay, I'm young. I'm like Wait, five years five, old. Okay. okay, so you know, I don't recall it, but what my parents told me is that the Anglican Church, the charismatic renewal side of things and the Jesus movement hit in New Zealand hit all churches so the, okay. so the leader of the Anglican church would be your classic spirit filled Anglican minister okay cool. you know and so he was that's why it wasn't that big of a transition so we had went from so it Angl- wasn't as much like maybe people that are are familiar with Catholicism kind of correct like the dead Latin service yeah. or something it wasn't, uh-huh. it wasn't like that yeah yeah, and okay. I mean you. I mean these days you get you know you get your charismatic Catholics and yeah, yeah there's yeah. such a mix of things and that's why yeah. I guess I don't love the I hate the labels a lot because it's like mm. okay I look at myself and go well I, there's absolutely parts of every denomination that you know I want to you know I want to be sure the charismatic yeah absolutely the gifts Pentecostal yeah the power but the word of God from an evangelical side that's got to be a huge component of who I holiness movement I want to be affected by my own sanctification and (laughs) and the desire to be walking out a, a life that is in that continual sanctified process so yeah don't love those denominational so, but see, all these movements and all these labels and these I don't know, brands and denominations, like, why can't we belong to all of them without belonging to any of them? That's it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, when people ask us what we are and it's like, okay, you're going to find some, yeah, classical things here, but no. really, but yeah, I, yeah, I really don't like that, that side of it because we should be learning and growing from each side of who we are. Uh, you know that the, you know there's there's yeah. tons to be learned from every person um you know keep the main things those main things you know we keep Jesus at the center and and all of that but yeah when we get stuck on one side of it or another that's i think that's when we become losers uh in growth you know we don't grow so yeah so it wouldn't be fair to label mountain hope center 
you're certainly going to find uh, people in our con- in our group of community who uh, who who for sure uh, have those have some strong emphasis on some charismatic Pentecostal things. But you're also going to find people who have come out of an evangelical background and. Uh, <laughs> You know, and some different backgrounds, and so so don't categorize a church by the one person you know from it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a poor representation yeah. of the whole. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I would hope, and primarily, hopefully, people come and they sense love for Jesus and His presence in the place. You know, that's got to be the primary thing at the there center it is. of it all. Yeah. So, um, how would you teach someone to pray? I'd probably go to, if somebody was wanting a, a model, you know, and, and so like I was taught by my parents or something, I'd probably take them to, you know, Matthew 6, where Jesus said, taught his disciples to pray mm. as a helper, but not a structure. Does that make sense? So I'd, I'd, I'd look at it and go, okay, well, what was there about, um, you know, Jesus came, you know, um, our Father, which out in heaven, there's a component there of praise and getting our focus mm-hmm. on Him. Um, you know, you know, it's like a prompt, as a prompt, as a as a set of set of directions that that could be helpful for somebody to um, look and go. Okay, well, I can break this down into you know, there was a praise element here. There's an element here of um, you know, putting the focus on Him, or an element of confession. Yeah. There's an element of God, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, praying into aligning myself with God. What are you wanting to, you know, what what element of your kingdom are you wanting to continue to reinforce? You know, mm-hmm. Jesus came, he preached the kingdom. You know, we know that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not in fulfillment. You know, the now, but not yet. So what is it about your kingdom coming to earth today that you want me to be involved in? You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, and yeah. so just using that as a helpful tool so it's a good place to start with with yep articulating your prayers absolutely i'm also curious in uh how would you teach someone because i think that's a great place to start i i, I that's a great model yep. Yep. Um, jesus taught his disciples it yep um but if somebody who maybe has been praying for yep. some time wants to know more about you were mentioning being filled up with scripture in silence yep and you were describing we're reading the word of God. Yep. But contempl- cont- contemplation is about hearing the voice of God right. in the word of God. Yep. H- how would you introduce somebody to that? Yep. I'd probably really encourage them to start with the Psalms mm. because the Psalms have so much. Um, you know, they're poetic, um, they're real heart connections and stuff. And I'd probably encourage them to to go. And to, you know, because the Psalms are real, they're David's heart, they're his, you know, him in the ups, the downs, the, the elements there. Yeah. And, I, and I'd encourage him to find a Psalm and just to read it, read it through, and then just to be thinking about it, to even be, you know, have a go at singing the Psalm, you know, because mm. a lot of them were song, you know, but just to think of ways that you could, um, you know, read it through two or three times and just be stopping and asking, okay, God, what is it that you're wanting to say to me out of this little section right here? What is it that's going on in, in my life today that you're wanting to align me with your heart? Um, yeah, so so do you repeat certain phrases of the psalm over yeah, and over, or yeah. do you literally sit in silence? How do you combat a distracted mind? Like, sure. Like what is literally happening while you're listening to God? Sure. I, I think, you know, I've got a mind that gets distracted easily as well. Um, and so <laughs> I would I would probably be 
uh, it takes practice and it does take discipline. Mm. Um, so there is a discipline element about it. You know, I think there is an element where we, you know, it does take some time to um, get our mind in the right place, tell our mind to be still, you know. Uh, we've got, you know, we are spirit, soul and body and so our mind, our will and emotions can be the distracting at times and so just bringing our place to that place where I recognize okay I'm spirit first mind you just need to be still and just maybe reading the psalm two or three times through and allowing um, what's happening there and just the be still before God and and try to bring that place of silence and being okay with the fact that I'm going to fail being okay with the fact that I'm going to get distracted be okay with that and just practice Doing it, and I think the more you practice it, um, the more you, uh, the more you're, the more who you are becomes disciplined to recognizing the distraction, being able to put it aside, um, and to be able to focus in and allow the words of what has been, what is written there, what I've read, and allowing um, my spirit to connect to Holy Spirit to be able to hear what He's saying to me yeah. at any given moment. So, like anything we do as humans, the more we do it, yeah. the more meaningful it becomes, yeah. the better we uh-huh. get at it. Yep, Excellent. I've heard. I think it might have been Sean Bowles. So somebody say that you know when you when you fail at something a thousand times, <laughs> when you and so you, you know what failure is when you actually hear right you so recognize the difference between what you've done previously as a failure and the new suddenly it's like ah that's different to that okay so i'm starting to recognize what what maybe i've failed in and that place where something is new so yeah having a go you know we really encourage our our community of people to be expecting that god would be speaking to them because you know he's wanting to reveal part of himself to somebody else you know what is it that God's what's the original plan in God's heart for that person you know when we're doing ministry with people and so but it's practice Mm. it's it's always practice you know we're going to fail who cares have a go you know I think we're more our community we're about have a go we make a mistake recognize it say we're sorry you know, or or just purely admit, okay, well, that was a mistake, right? <laughs> and then have another go, you know, don't mm-hmm. stop from that. And the same with prayer. It's like, okay, I spent this time in contemplation and I'm reading your word and all I ended up doing was getting distracted and thinking about football, right? Okay, well, I failed. Well, next time I go back to that place, have another go and have another go at reading through this, you know, the psalm and saying, okay, Holy yeah. Spirit, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? And one of the things I've um, experienced is those distractions at times, even though I don't want to focus my attention on them, but they are signals. Sometimes they're signals of what matters to me. Yep. And I wouldn't know, uh-huh. oh, that football thought was that important to me uh-huh. until it intruded into prayer. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm beginning to learn my own soul and the things uh-huh. that it loves. Yes. Yeah. So the distractions, too, are... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you're and saying, sometimes, And we shouldn't be... Um, Sometimes the things that come to mind might actually be Holy Spirit with a picture. Mm, yeah. They might be Holy Spirit with um, a word that stands out. You know, I was up the other night and just, um, you know, it was, I'm trying to get better. What I'm working on right now is trying to develop um, getting out of bed. If, like if I'm awake in the middle of the night, maybe that's actually God wanting to spend some time with me. Maybe I should actually be obedient and get out of bed. <laughs> and so I was out of bed the other night 
and which is a developing thing, all right? So don't feel guilty about that. But got out of bed and just sat down and in the dark and was just like, okay, Holy Spirit, what, God, what are you wanting to say to me? And and just got this kind of really weird random picture. So I just wrote it down, just wrote it down. And the more that I thought about it and spent some time with it, it felt like it was something for, you know, it felt like it was a God moment for something. So I'm now I'm looking for, okay, God, well, is this for me? Is this for somebody else? Is this an encouragement for, you know? And so just trying to be in the place where, um, yes, silence and contemplation and developing that discipline is good for God to speak to us. God will bring us pictures, you know, what does that picture mean? Asking him, God, what are you saying? What do you mean by that? What is going on? And just trying to develop a sense of recognizing these moments where he gives us these words or gives us these pictures and writing it down and then looking for the moment of how does that connect? You know, it's like a big puzzle. It's a it's a treasure hunt of, okay, well, this may mean nothing. It may be just totally a, a thought of my own. But maybe it's not. Maybe he's got this for somebody. Maybe this is a something for something. Maybe it's for me. Maybe it's an encouragement for me. God, what do you mean by that? What are you saying in this moment? And when you describe the, what's going on in, in you with prayer, it's easy to see how Jesus can spend all night on the mountain in yeah, prayer. Yeah. But when you think that he's up there rambling a list of requests and things, you're going, how? There's no way you can yeah. spend all night doing that yeah. without... Yeah. being bored in tears or yeah. something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, that's that's so key. Is Jesus, you know, he didn't, you know, he said, I don't do anything unless I, you know, hear the Father say it or do it first, you know. And so he's spending time with the Father, getting connected mm-hmm. on all that he's to be doing, you know, all the healings and miracles and all those things. To me, I'm, I'm looking at it and going, well, surely he must have been hearing from the Father on what he was and wasn't supposed to be doing. And it's that word you used earlier, alignment. Yep. Prayer is uh, yeah. feeling the rhythm yeah. of God. Yeah, and that takes the, it just takes the guilt away from the doing. My doing now comes out of the place of having spent time with Him. That okay, this is the assignment and the doing, yeah. as opposed to I feel guilty because I haven't spent enough time. You know, yeah. and, and trying to remove that from people's lives that. Yeah, there are the disciplines. Okay, don't get me wrong. There are there is an element to our lives that is discipline. Right, right. But if my doing is based out of guilt, then I'm missing the relationship. You know. But yeah, we we can't sit here and compare badges. How many hours of prayer have uh-huh. you done in your life? How many no. have I done? Yeah, that's not what it is. And if if I if I have to spend time with my wife, then I'm in a bad relationship. I want to mm. spend time with my wife in the same way I want to spend time with God because it's that heart-to-heart engagement and so and then out of that place then comes the assignments and the different things that I'm you know the uh, that I get to do and are a part of but primarily I think that's been the biggest thing I've learned in the last few years is just being with him adding being to my doing right I've kind of learned to just be and be okay with if I if the only thing I do for the next hour is spend time loving him telling him how awesome he is you know as I read the Psalms and, and David's praising and I'm reading that back to him that's enough that's enough you know the uh, the day and night you know prayers being offered as incense up to you know the throne of God out of Malachi or 
um, you know, the, everybody gathering around the throne and, and worship and adoration. Well, that's, 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 if all I do is spend time sitting in a room in a prayer room or walking and praying or just being in that place of loving him, that's enough. That's actually enough. That's enough. Because you're a human being, not yeah. a human doing. Yeah. Which is, you know, I know that's, you know, it's a cliche thing, but it, it yeah. really is learning to just be with him has been, has changed my prayer life in the last three, four years. It's absolutely transformed it from a guilt-based discipline to a place of love and engagement with the heart of the Father. And, and, and that is a growing thing. Um, and so now it becomes an enjoyment. Like, I enjoy prayer. I used to hate it. You know, it used to be one of those disciplines of, I've got to do this. I haven't done my Bible. I haven't done, you know, my prayer. I haven't done this. And, and now it is a place of a nice, comfortable chair, a great hot drink, you know, cup of coffee, and some music going and just loving and worshipping him um, out of that place. And sometimes it's reading my Bible. Sometimes it's, um, you know, praying through certain things sometimes it's just sitting there and just being and just feeling having nothing to say or do but just being in his presence and feeling like he is there with me and feeling his presence and peace you know feeling that peace of god that just rests around about you um that's that's awesome that's changed my prayer life so excellent pastor rory collins from mountain hope center on prayer thank you rory awesome thanks brandon Part 4, Psalms, a monthly prayer ritual. I was saved, raised, and ordained in Calvary Chapel. That's where I serve as a pastor and always have. And I am very grateful for being raised in, in the Lord in Calvary Chapel. It has given me, undoubtedly given me, a love for Scripture that I perhaps would not have acquired anywhere else. Calvary Chapel has taught me how to read the Bible as God's word, and I am forever grateful for that. With that said, and this is not a knock at all, but with that said, I have also been sheltered from many other traditions in Christianity. And one of those is uh, the practice of reading the Psalms on a monthly basis. Now, for some of you, this may not be a surprise at all, and you can skip right over this. But the common book of prayer, a prayer book common to a lot of churches that follow liturgical cycles, um, it includes within it the entire Psalter, and it breaks up the Psalms into a monthly reading cycle. And this is pretty easily done. You don't need the book of prayer to do this. All you need is the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms, and there are 30 days in a month, sometimes an extra day. Well, divide 150 by 30 and you get five. So in order to read the Psalms every month, you need to read five Psalms a day. And if you skip a day or so, uh, that's okay. Because what I've uh, picked up the habit of doing uh, on and off, but I'm presently in the habit and I'm glad because I, I yeah, I'm glad because now I can talk about it. Um, is to read the five psalms that go with that day. So, this is really easy to figure out. Day one, the first five psalms. Day two, psalms six through ten. 
But what about when you get somewhere down the road, like day 11? I haven't read for two days. Where are we? Very easy to do. Take the date on the calendar, the 11th, and multiply it by five. You get 55. That number is where you should end up by day's end. In other words, you are to read chapters 51 through 55. That's how you figure out what you're reading that day. Pretty simple. Um, now, this is fantastic practice because the Psalms are Israel's prayer book. It's fine to pray whatever comes to our minds and to pray in response to emergencies and needs in our lives. We should always do that. But it's also excellent to have a guide in prayer, as Israel understood. And here we have 150 prayers that we can go through on a monthly basis to allow our hearts and minds to be shaped by a scriptural approach to prayer, which I find beneficial because if I always pray in response to life, I may miss completely a lot of aspects of praying to my Father. Often, we pray in response to what we feel. When I'm anxious, I'm praying anxious prayers. When I'm excited, I'm praying excited prayers. When I'm thankful, I'm praying thankful prayers. When I'm distressed, I'm praying distressed prayers. In order to have a more holistic and robust and balanced prayer life, um, we need to, yes, have spontaneous prayers, but also a guide. And I believe that the Psalms are the best prayer book we can go through on a regular basis. So, if you want to uh, strengthen your prayer life, join the challenge of reading the Psalms once a month and keep doing it over and over and over. And now our preview of the next chapters in 1 Samuel. We will be covering... Chapters 4 through 15, but I will not be teaching from all of them. I will be focusing mainly on Sunday on chapter 8, where Saul, I mean, sorry, where Israel demands a king. And then in chapter 15, where Saul fails and is rejected from being king. And when he, when that happens, this will set up the next series of chapters where David is anointed to be king. One of the things that we should look for as we read this is what is it that Israel wants in a king and what is it that this king wants in his position? Because to me, the text has been showing a lot of interesting signs of what that is so in chapter 4, Israel goes to war against the Philistines. They are their nemesis in this book. And in fact, it's one of the reasons they want a king is because they want deliverance from the Philistines. Well, they bring the ark to the battle. It seems that this may have been a typical thing that they would do. The priests bring the ark out. It rallies the troops. Um, it was supposed to inspire fear in the other nation. But Israel falls in battle. Part of Samuel's prophecy over Eli's priesthood, that it would fall in one day. 
And so his, Eli's sons, the priests, are slaughtered. The ark is captured. Eli hears news of this, and he falls over backward, breaks his neck, and dies. So the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, which was usually reserved to be held in the Holy of Holies. Now, you might be asking, how did the Ark get out of the Holy of Holies? It's not supposed to be like that. And you're exactly right. But remember, 1 Samuel opens the way judges closed with chaos, disorder, and darkness. And so the immorality that was spreading throughout the nation had seeped as deeply as the priesthood itself. And so they're doing things out of the ordinary. We already saw it in chapter 2, how the priests would uh, take meat from the worshipers as they made their sacrifices. They would select the portions that were supposed to be for God and eat them themselves. They would sleep with women who would come to serve at the temple. Uh, and so here's another oddity. Oh, another one that was hinted at is um, chapter 3 said the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it seems that they didn't keep it burning continually, the lampstand, which they were supposed to do. And then we see this, the Ark of the Covenant being brought out for war. So whatever's going on, it doesn't seem that any of it's normal. The priesthood's corrupt. The whole worship system of Israel is not quite where it should be. And now the Ark is captured. So this is perhaps the depths of the darkness that Israel has plummeted to. The enemy holds the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic throne of Yahweh on earth. But the Philistines pay a price. Uh, Dagon, their their god, um, is found fallen face down before the Ark. That's just a fantastic story you need to read about in chapter 5. Uh, and then the ark, God's presence through the ark is bringing plagues to the Philistines to the point where they don't want it anymore. What was once the grand prize of beating Israel, the Philistines say, we don't want this ark anymore. Give it back to Israel. So they send it on a cart with oxen back to the Israelites. Um, and it's received and it's never actually given back to the temple or the tabernacle. It stays there for many chapters until David becomes king and in 2 Samuel chapter 6 decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant into its the new city of Jerusalem, David's new headquarters. And then he wants to build a temple for it, which his son will do. Yeah, it sits nowhere for a long time. Oh, and by the way, the way the Philistines brought the Ark back to the Israelites on a cart pulled by oxen, David tries to bring it up to Jerusalem the same way uh, Uzziah, I think his name is, Uzziah grabs the ark when the oxen stumble to stabilize it, and he dies. And David's like, what's up? And then they decide, oh, we did the ark improperly. The priests are supposed to carry it on poles. And so then they stop carrying the ark like the Philistines did. They do it the way Israel's supposed to do. We see the priesthood beginning to be restored under the kingship of David. Then in chapter 8, Israel demands a king. So we won't get into too much detail because that will be Sunday's message. But I do want you to start to notice some things. Um, their concern with their image. In 8 verse 5, they say, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
We look different. <laughs> we want to be like the other nations. Um, then we go right to chapter 9 where we see a description of King Saul. And check this out. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, son of Zeror, son of Vekoroth, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Did you hear that load of description about what an awesome guy Saul was on the surface? He's from a man of wealth, handsome young man. No one is more handsome than he. And then fourth, from the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, that word taller, you need to know, is the Hebrew word gevoach. Gevoach. It's not the first time you've seen this word in Samuel. Back in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, she prays this. There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so Gevoha, gevoha. Let not arrogance from your mouth. Okay. She says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Very proudly. It's tough for translators here because it's the Hebrew word, gevoha, gevoha, twice. And so the translator's like, what, what do you do with this? It's a word that literally means tall or to be exalted. And so they decided that it's saying, uh, don't talk in an exalting way. So they put very proud because it's mentioned twice. Well, it comes to Saul. So, okay, so Hannah's prayer is, of course, about the high being brought low, the low being brought high. And so here we see this word gevoach mentioned the first time. And there's this admonition, don't be gevoach. Then we're introduced to Saul in chapter 9, verse 2. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller. He was gevoha than any of the people. See, what the author here is doing is not just giving us a physical description of Saul. Oh, he was a tall person. I'm sure he was literally tall, but with that came status. He was a man who looked like a king. And the author uses the word gevoha because it's not just about his height. It's also about a view of exaltation. Whether Saul was proud of himself or not is hard to say. But the people who wanted a king to be like the other nations found in Saul someone who made them look good. I said before in the last message that there's going to be this theme of charisma versus character in this book. Well, here we're seeing the setting of charisma cast. And of course, by charisma, we don't mean uh, people who pray very passionately, not a charismatic kind of church, not that. By charisma, we mean someone who is attractive to others, who's magnetic, who has an ability to influence people because they have this wow factor. King Saul is a charismatic leader. 
While there's nothing wrong with charisma in and of itself, we will see through his reign and his fall that he has no character. David has that. So I want you, as you read, to look for more hints about this con- this conception of uh, this concept of charisma. How many times can you see this concern with image or that word tall appear again? Uh, it does appear a few more times. And if you want to even do some extra study, go and look what Hebrew word it is. It's the word gevoha. That's going to be um, the clincher. It's repeated in chapter 10. And then chapter um, 11. So Saul in chapter 10 is presented before the people. In chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites which kind of gives everyone the proof. See, he's everything we thought he'd be. He's victorious. And so then they crown him king. He's the official king. Chapter 12, Samuel steps back from no longer leading the people. He will just advise as a prophet. So he gives a farewell address. In chapter 13, Saul fights the Philistines. Um, and he also makes an unlawful sacrifice. He can't wait for Samuel. Samuel's late. So he does what the priest should have done, what Samuel should have done. And he's chastised for that. So God says, your sons will not be king. Chapter 14, his son comes into the picture. Jonathan brilliantly and bravely defeats the Philistines on behalf of a cowarding people of Israel. Uh, Interesting. I I don't know why. Maybe you can pray about it and see what God shows you. Um, Why right after Saul's told his sons will not reign, do we get this picture of a worthy son leading a a miraculous victory. Why is that? Perhaps because then Saul makes a rash vow and Jonathan's found guilty and it's made to make Saul look stupid for making such a vow. Um, Jonathan did nothing wrong by breaking it. Um, And then in chapter 15, that's where Saul gets rejected as king himself. So in 13, his sons are rejected. In 15, he is rejected. And all over, I highlighted, I highlighted in orange every instance where you see a concern for image or charisma. Uh, there's a lot of orange in chapter 15. So I'll let you do that. And then this great summarization of charisma versus character can be found in 15 verse 22. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. The sacrifices, something you can show, you can present, you can make it look awesome for God. But what Samuel is there telling Saul is God wanted, first of all, you to form your life in obedience. Your character mattered a whole lot more than your show. Hope you enjoy reading for Samuel. The Lord speaks to you through it. Look forward to teaching on Sunday. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thanks for listening.